What does it take to move from evidence to belief? And how do you help those around you come to those conclusions? The Access More Podcast Network has faith-based shows about culture, family, and entertainment without all the other noise so you can discover inspiring conversations easier. Start listening today at accessmore.com. Hey, what's up? Hello. Man, I am super excited. <laughs> Aren't you always? always? I feel like, bless this guest's heart, they've heard that twice before <laughs> and now they've made it three times. He has definitely heard it twice. Yes. <laughs> now it's three. Yes, our superstar, awesome, favorite, recurring guest. Jay Warner Wallace is here today. So we're going to, we don't need to do the big intro. No, he is uh, the author of Cold Case Christianity, among many other books. Um, but this is the one that kind of started it all. And so a brief, brief little preface. He was a cold case homicide detective that was an atheist. He did not believe. And after deciding to treat Christ as a cold case and seeing if any of this could be trusted or if it was just, you know, a nice little moral story you could read at bedtime. It completely and radically changed his life. So mm. welcome, Jim. It's awesome to yes. have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this was something that, uh, yeah, that was my journey. Um, and I just saw yesterday uh, on a video that somebody was challenging my my pedigree, my background as far as cold cases. And when I started first started working cold cases, and when I was first looking at ex examining the, the scriptures to see what was true about them, uh, we did not have a cold case team. Every cold case murder was assigned as a collateral duty. And we had a bunch of these unsolved murders. And these are just cases that, you know, are just um, at some point, a detective in the past said, I, I'm stuck. I, I can't get past this point. And um, that, or that guy retires or he gets transferred out of the detail. And then you have this case that's unsolved and they don't close because by statute they don't close. And I was assigned actually when I first started looking at cold cases, I was assigned to the surveillance team. But I knew my dad had a case and my dad's case was uh, a 10 year old girl who was killed in 1972. And I was about 10 at that time, uh, about 11. And um, I remember it because it shook our family and it changed our community and it never got solved. So uh, by the time I was in my thirties, I was now uh, getting senior investigator pay working on a surveillance team. And my job was not working cold cases, but nobody had a job working cold cases. These were all assigned as collateral duties. We didn't have a cold case team formally. I think I did three cases and took two of them to trial before we even formed a team wow. because these cases were done collaterally. And I remember my dad's case was interesting because I didn't, you know, it wasn't like somebody was asking me to do it. These cases, that case was not assigned to me, but I had finished uh, doing a lot of work in forensic statement analysis. And this case involved a thousand page confession of a man who confessed to the crime in 1974. He wasn't our killer. Wow. But I needed to be sure. So I went down and pulled out the thousand page confession and just did a forensic statement analysis on the confession. And sure enough, he's not our guy. As a matter of fact, we didn't solve that case for another. Well, let's see. That was in the mid 90s. We didn't solve it until 2019 using DNA oh. evidence from uh, ancestry searches. By oh. 2017 or so, that technology was coming online. And we were able to solve it. And these cases sometimes would take us um, eight to, to, to 10 years apiece. We would always work a bunch of cases simultaneously. 
And so we didn't even, that's why it took so long. So, so I was applying all the techniques that we apply to cold cases that I actually applied eventually in the assignment as a cold case detective, mm-hmm. we would have these collateral cases. The first three we, we did, we, we weren't, there was no cold case team. We just did them on the side. And that was the approach I took because that was the only skill set I had. You know, if I would had been um, uh, a philosopher, I suppose I might've looked at the philosophy of the Christian worldview. If I had been a historian, I would have looked at the historical accounts in a historian's way. I mean, I was a detective. And all I knew was, hey, you're going to bunch of these reports. I don't have access to anybody. Mm-hmm. How do I know what they're telling me is true? Right. And that was how I jumped in. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, that's, oh, that's heavy. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, because first of all, you're undermanned. You're understaffed. You're doing multiple different things. But you're also attaining a focus, a focus on something. And so when we transition that over to your, the, you know, reading the word of God and, and looking at these accounts from Matthew, Mark, you know, Luke and John and seeing all of these different angles and how people can sit there and tear them apart and say, well, they're not saying the same thing, but you looked at it differently. You're looking at it from accounts from different people. So when we look at this, so, you know, we're here for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, we, we see that you have a new book out, which Michelle was talking about. And what I liked about this new book is you didn't just stop. Like a lot of people will come out, you know, a few years later, write another book. What you did was improve on this book. Mm-hmm. And when we start looking at the, our pantry, right, we start looking at, you know, I, I start to look at analogies. As I look mm-hmm. in my pantry, I look in my storehouse, I look, and we do food. So, you know, hey, the pantry podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I sit there and I'm like, oh, well, okay, that's like having a bag of beans. So we have a bag of beans that's sitting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, it, 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 you can either you leave it there, not use it at all. Or you can bring it out and do the simple thing, soak it overnight, and then cook it the next day, put a little bit of salt in it, call it a day. But you took this book and you spiced it. Uh, mm-hmm. like, like that, that, that's where we want to kind of sit and not necessarily, you know, the book, because I think people need to go out and read it. I think right. people need to go through the illustrations that you spent time handwriting. We talked about that in our last episode that you like you were telling us about. Actually, you told us about the book. Maybe we were in a side conversation, mm-hmm. but you're telling us how you were drawing it up. But you, you took the beans, not just you didn't leave the beans in the closet. You took the beans out of the closet, man. You threw in like a smoked ham hock. <laughs> you put in some cumin, some coriander, some you know, some garlic, some onion, and you made this thing like tasty. And so when I'm looking at, at this and how you were how you're how you're spicing up something that you know you wrote earlier in your in, in, in this walk, what drove that? Where where was this coming from? How was God speaking? How was your faith involved in saying, hey, you know what? I need to bring more to the table. I need to give people more sustenance. Well, and well, Cold Case was the first book I ever wrote. I never th- right. thought myself uh, I was going to write that book. Um, it was a, it kind of bumped into it. I was um, I was like you. I became a youth pastor, and um, I was pastoring students. And uh, then, I, as, as those students grew up, our church merged. And so, about five years into being a youth pastor, I found myself uh, planting a church with the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, that church we had it for about six years, and that was mostly those high schoolers who were now in college, a few older uh, folks as well. Sometimes their parents would join us, and that church uh, we had for about six years. And then I had this; I was leading young people. Even that church, we led them in immersive experiences. So every year we would take a trip to uh, Salt Lake City because we wanted to teach theology to young people. And when I'm talking about young people, I'm talking about like, uh, high school and college age. Mm-hmm. And by that time, 
Um, and so we would, that trip I had started 10 years earlier when I had a high school group. So, so we were doing this now with slightly older, older folks and they loved it. And, and it's, it's a, if you want to teach theology, it's pretty, can be kind of dry and people don't necessarily see how it changes their life, how it applies to their life. Now, good, uh, pastors, good preachers can kind of help you connect those dots. But if you really want to drive your students or your, your congregation to learn something and to own it, to learn it to the, well, then, then take them on an immersive experience like this. Cause we would take them to Salt Lake city and we would evangelize Mormons and Mormons have changed every key expression, every key term in the Christian faith. They have changed it just slightly. And that change was done for the purpose of, you know, accommodating the, the thoughts and the evolving the, uh, theology of Joseph Smith. And so if you want your students to understand what we, why the trying nature of God is important or what is the nature of, of Jesus, is he divine by nature or was he just a man who ascended into Godhood? These are some big differences. And right. it turns out the best way to teach theology is to put them in that immersive experience. And so we would spend eight weeks training and then we spend one week in Salt Lake City, in Provo, on the campus of BYU, in the neighborhood around BYU, at a uh, miracle pageant they have in Manti at the time. And so we would spend time putting our kids in the kind of most horrific uh, evangelism scenarios that most of our, <laughs> our, our uh, congregations don't want to be part of. Uh, and we would put them in those situations and they would just thrive. And we also did a trip in the fall to UC Berkeley. And there we were talking about, you know, is this even true? And right. a lot of folks at that campus don't believe it's true. Now, what was interesting about that second trip is that eventually Sean McDowell uh, caught on that we were doing these trips and he was a high school teacher at the time. And he's also an apologist. And so he decided let's start. he wanted to start taking these trips up there. And so we we took him the first couple of times to show him, show him the ropes. Here's what these look like. And on one of those trips, I was teaching his students when he said, you know, you should take this visual approach to, you know, get to making a case for the reliability. And it hasn't changed in all the years since I did this originally for myself. I have been talking about this process um, for my entire Christian life. And so I, he, he saw the, how visual it was. And he says, you should write a book about this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that was the first kind of effort. And he was connected enough to help me figure out like, how do I, how would I do something like that? And that really was the impetus for cold case Christianity. But when you do one book, you don't know you're going to do another one for all, you know, this thing's going to fall up, you know, fall away into obscurity and no one's going to ask you to write another book. So you, you, and, and you also don't have any background where you can say to a publisher, hey, I'd like this to be a little bit bigger and include <laughs> more illustrations. They're like, no, I don't think so. It's going to be this page count. This is all you're right. getting. Right. And so a lot of it was was restricted that now that the book did so well, they're looking back at it and saying, well, now we can do the book that you wanted to do originally. And that <laughs> book has 300 more illustrations than the book I, I was able to do the first time because I like Person of Interest, a book I did two years ago, that right. I wanted this to be robustly visual. And I've learned some things in the last 10 years of presenting this to high schoolers and to youth groups and to college groups and to congregations all over the country. You learn something about, well, that this is a, there's a more expedient way, let's say, to, or a more influential way to say X. Mm -hmm. So I went back in the book and every single page of the original book has been edited, updated and revised. There's mm -hmm. entirely new sections in the book and yeah. entirely new afterward in the book. This is a different book. Right. And this really is the book that I, if I had permission to write it 
10 years ago, this is what it would have looked like. But now we do have permission. So here you go. There it yeah, is. That's, that's amazing yeah. how God works I know. in his time. Yes, but it's yeah. the perfect time. And I think that, you know, I've, I think we've discussed this before, how much of a fan of apologetics I am and how I nerd out about it in real, like, you know, in the bean analogy, Shay's the bean fan and I only eat Shay's beans pretty much. Like, I didn't really like them until he cooked them for me. In apologetics land, I love apologetics and he's like, I'll use them if I have to, right? But I think that one of um, our apologetics professors was telling us, you know, apologetics is kind of like the art of removing obstacles out of a person's way when they're genuinely trying to figure out the truth. And so having answers not to combat or debate, but to lovingly move blockades out of the way. What that makes me think about your book, both back then and now, is that you've made it palatable for Christians who might think apologetics is a fancy term and it's you know, maybe it's intimidating or it's boring or it's an abstract or it's for debates. You've you've brought it into a highly practical way that actually helps inform their worldview. It convicts them, but also it has impacted the lives of many who doubt and many who, you know, have never believed. And so my big question for you is, you know, you had all of this evidence. I know you you, you bring this up in your book, but I think this is important for listeners is you had all this evidence compiled back when you were doing this for yourself. And then you still had to take this leap of faith at the end to decide if that was enough for you. And there's so many who don't believe who they've read your book and it's still not enough for them. So for the believer that might think, you know, oh, if I only memorize this book, well, then I can save a ton of people. Right. <laughs> and then yeah, they go out there and it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no. But what have you noticed in all of your conversations what have you noticed does, like, like, what is that experience like? There's all of this evidence that you've been given and now the choice is still yours. Like what happens next? How, how do you see it and perceive it? In, in okay, so we have met? to define, we talk about faith. Now, now there's something that when I first um, approached a publisher about the book, um, I knew there were three books that, that were kind of a parallel that I, I was ready to write because that was part of my journey into Christianity. And, mm-hmm. and cold case was the one that was about the reliability of scripture in God's crime scene was about the existence of God and mm-hmm. forensic faith was about the nature of faith. Mm-hmm. And, and so I talk about this more in forensic faith, but here's how I would position it. Uh, we have different kinds of beliefs in relationship to evidence. So you can have an unreasonable belief that you hold on to, even though there's evidence to the contrary. Hmm. That's not what Christianity is, but there are people who, so for example, if you thought like, you know, warts come from frogs and you always believe that, well, you're holding a belief that we now know based on evidence is just not true, but um, you may still believe that. And now you're holding it up what I would call an unreasonable belief because you're holding this in spite of evidence to the contrary. Their second kind of belief is what I would call just a blind belief. It's a belief that you you hold, but you have no evidence either for or against. You just believe this to be true, and you don't even ask about evidence. For whatever reason, you don't require it. The third kind of belief is belief because of evidence. You have evidence, and even though you have unanswered questions, because there's never been a case I've put in front of a jury where there weren't unanswered questions. Right. And what I mean is, 
we ask jurors all the time, are you the kind of person who can render a verdict even though you have unanswered uh, open questions? And if they say, well, I don't think I could do that, then you're going to be excused because we can't. I've never been able to answer. We tell jurors, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known because I don't know everything that could be known. So we make decisions in juries, uh, even though we lack every piece of evidence you'd like to have. You have enough to make the, to make the decision, but you don't have everything you'd like. That's just the nature of making a case for anything. So what we tell jurors is we're going to give you all kinds of evidence that's going to lead you in a specific direction, right toward that guy at the end of the table over there, that defendant. It's going to lead you right to his doorstep. And it's probably not going to lead you as far as you'd like, because if you could just have that one more thing, you might think it'd be a, just what you'd be able to close the gap between the evidence and him. But we are going to, you've got enough. And you're going to take that step from the end of the evidence trail to what we call a verdict. Mm-hmm. And everyone does this. Same is true here with Christianity. There's more than enough evidence that's leading you right to the door of Jesus of Nazareth. But there's not everything you'd like because there never is. And so you're going to have to take a step. Now, we call that a step of faith. But remember, this is an evidential. This is a reasonable faith in the light of the evidence. And this is exactly how Jesus saw it. Jesus never asked us to take a blind step. And those passages that people will sometimes refer to when they'll say, well, isn't this really about believing without any evidence? I simply don't work in terms there. They, Thomas, when, for example, he, he has to see Jesus and put his hand in the wound. Uh, Jesus says to him, well, blessed are you, Thomas, but blessed are more are those who, who don't get to see this yet believe. Mm-hmm. Keep reading. What is he on the basis of what? On the basis of the testimony of Thomas, who's now going to testify that he saw it, and that is called direct evidence. Mm-hmm. Any eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. And Jesus loves direct evidence. And the only other form of evidence is indirect evidence. Mm-hmm. Direct evidence is simply eyewitness accounts. Everything else is indirect. So in a crime scene, DNA, that's indirect. Fingerprint evidence, that's indirect. Blood spatter evidence, that's indirect. The only kind of direct evidence is eyewitnesses. Jesus says, hey, the father testifies to me. John the Baptist testified to me. What is he doing? He's citing direct evidence. Oh, and if you don't believe what I'm telling you, he says in the Gospel of John, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you. What's he doing? He's pointing to indirect evidence. And Jesus is such an evidentialist that when John the Baptist has doubts and he sends his disciples to Jesus and they come and they say, Jesus, John sent us. He wants to know, are you the one? Really? Now, Jesus has some. Remember, what's important to detectives is not just what the guy says. It's what he could have said, but chose not to say. That's every bit as important to us. Jesus could have said a number of things there. He could have said, are you kidding me? This is my cousin who leapt in the womb. This is my cousin who baptized me and saw the Spirit of God descend on me. This is my cousin who knows I'm the Messiah because he sent his disciples to me and called me the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This guy now has doubts. You tell him he needs to be praying about this. No, doesn't take that approach. Instead, what he does is he works miracles in front of John's disciples, and he says, go back and tell John what you just saw. Indirect evidence, Jesus is an evidentialist. He even spends 40 days with the disciples in Acts chapter 1 after the resurrection, giving them many convincing proofs. That's evidence. That's the Greek word in the New Testament that we use for evidence. Not only that, who gets to proclaim as an apostle? Who takes the place of Judas? An eyewitness. 
somebody who knew in the upper room, who knew Jesus from the baptism all the way to the resurrection. They needed an eyewitness. So when we say testimony in the New Testament, I say all the time that your testimony doesn't matter. And people will say, well, wait a minute, hold on. I did testimony all the time in the New Testament. And you'll see all the time that, well, yeah, that testimony is different. That's not how did Jesus change my life? Mm. Never does anyone tell you that in the New Testament. No, testimony in the New Testament is I saw the risen Christ. Very different. Mm -hmm. It's That's direct evidence of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is so important. Do I think that your personal testimony is important? Of course. But to be honest, my Mormon family has better testimony than many Christians I meet. Doesn't make Mormonism true. Here's what they can't do. They can't make an evidential case for Mormonism. You could. That's why your experience is more reliable than theirs because they they can talk about how they've been changed, but they can't talk about, they can't make a case for what changed them. Right. You could talk about how you've been changed and make a case for what changed you. And that's the difference. And that's why I write a book like this because I want people to be able to ground their experiences in truth. We have become such a relativistic, subjective world right now where truth is grounded in our experience, our lived experience, that 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 nobody even cares anymore what's objectively true. People are so, especially young people. And by the way, it's because we have certain doubts about the veracity of other claims, but we never doubt our own experiences, right? So a lot of what we're seeing and a more subjective approach to truth comes from a skepticism about claims made by other people. And if you think this is going to get better, you're not paying attention to the artificial intelligence revolution we're about to start. Because in that revolution, you're never going to, you're not even going to know anymore what's true or if it's just been generated by AI. And we're going to become even more dependent on our own lived experience. So if we don't make a case right now for young people, that Christianity is objectively true. We're running out of time. Absolutely. That, that is, Oh, see, we always bounce out because <laughs> now, now we're, now we're into some, some, some truth. Um, I like, I like this when we start to see that feelings, emotions, cool. We got that right. But biblical truth and, and, and aligning ourselves and diving into the word of God and knowing that truth, um, and not swaying from that truth, because you're right. We are getting into an age um, it's actually, you know, we've been in an age of lies. We've been in an age of deception. We've been in an age where there is definitely a spiritual uh, warfare, there's spiritual warfare going on. And when we start to talk about these things and knowing what the word of God says and unpacking the word of God and knowing that I, I love this objective. And I love, I love like, you know, <laughs> you have the, the direct evidence, which is people who are speaking. And then you have indirect evidence where it's, you know, like blood spatter and stuff like that. And so when you start looking at the word of God, you start to see something that was written within 60 years of completion. So you start seeing the New Testament written within 60 years of the people who witnessed this, who claimed this, who sat there and said, no, I saw this. This this isn't some experience that I'm having. This isn't a feeling that I have. This is something that I had my eyes on. And you start placing this together and we start giving this to the young people. Cause I think you're right. I no, I don't think you're right. Why am I, why am the, why am I in the youth business? Because I see a generation out there who is seeking, who is seeking to find facts 
and, and, and they want to hear the facts. They don't, they're not just trying to shun us out. Now you're right. There are a lot of people out there, but I'm starting to see in the younger, there's a group out there in the middle here that are kind of emotional and have some feelings and stuff. And it's kind of like hard to get to them sometimes. But these younger kids that I'm coming across are asking questions. In fact, they're asking so many questions to so many different people that they're coming up with like 19 different religions. And so when I run into people on the street, you said, you know, you know, you go to, to, to Utah to, to do with the Mormons and you go up to, to California to where was Berkeley, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Berkeley. I'm dealing with people that are like, yeah, I'm half Buddhist and I'm part Christian and I'm part whatever. And it's like because we're not grounded in the truth. And so bringing this truth to them and letting them digest not a feeling, mm-hmm. but a fact is something that I think is just as important. You know, she said I shy away from apologetics. I just kind of do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm out there, you know, and I hear it in a different way and I bring it in a different way. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is what you guys are saying is take down these walls and let them see something that's, that's truth and not so much objective. Mm-hmm. As people want to say Christianity, oh, well, you know, it's just, a, you know, it's just, you know, that's your, that's your, your, your thought, your feeling. And I'm like, hold on a second. Like I was in a conversation the other day with a science guy. And he's like, well, you know, science, I haven't seen it. And in science, it's an, a seen thing. And I said, well, well, we got a problem here. I said, you're sitting there saying that science is something that has to be seen. But then how do you explain origin? How, how, do, you, how do you go back to origin on this? Well, I can go back to the origins of the Bible through eyewitness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm unpacking a lot here. No, no. I mean, there was a lot. There was a lot to unpack. And one of the things that I think is important is that people normally think that faith is something that you like, like you mentioned, like this blind faith. But then we can in the most practical overused analogy ever of a chair, you know, you believe the chairs will hold you because as a baby, you watch people sit in chairs and no one fell off unless they were a really big or a really weak chair, you know, or because, you know, but you watch through life, you observe and you learn what you can count on and what you can count on it for. And so the things that we just kind of take, we don't call it faith, but we're, we just believe it's going to do what it's going to do because that's what it's always done. And so when people add the word faith and religion together, then suddenly it's this amorphous thing that they can't, that they think that they can like dismiss and excuse for the believer though, in their, you know, in their, for their pantry, Right. They might have a lot of experiences where they've just accepted what they've been told. They haven't really critically thought it through. Of course, the thing, many of what of the things they've been told are true, but they haven't vetted it. But let's say they have the opposite. Let's say they have they've come to Christ. They are armed with all of these beautiful, wonderfully articulated proofs that reinforce that the Bible is the word of God. What do they need to start building a relationship with God? What else do they need? Because I think sometimes people err on the on the side of what we would call during this episode, like the blind faith, where they're just like, well, I always I grew up this way. I accept what people tell me. I'm a Christian. On the other side, you might have, you know, the apologistic egghead who's like, I just need to read tons of apologetic books. But then in their day to day walk, maybe it's not impacting them. What are they missing in your opinion? Well, it's, it's, it's difficult to move from from belief that to belief in to, to, to from knowing God to experiencing God. Um, I'm always very suspicious in, of my own experiences. I, I don't mm-hmm. trust my heart. I don't trust my emotions. I want to think myself through a situation first before I trust what I'm feeling. And that's because, uh, you know, when I was coming up as a young man, I didn't have anyone who was a Christian in my life, but I did have people who were Mormon. Uh, that My stepmother became a Mormon when I was about maybe six or seven. 
And so as she was raising her kids, six that she had with my dad, he, she raised him LDS. And so I knew if if you don't believe LDS, uh, um, that the Latter-day Saints are have something true in the Book of Mormon, and I don't believe they do, um, then I don't want to take the same approach Mormons do, because clearly that approach does not um, prevent you from falling into error. Um, so I knew that there had to be something more than just experiencing my way in, because if you've ever dealt with Mormon missionaries, they're going to ask you to read the Book of Mormon. They're going to ask you to pray about it, not to test God by testing the Book of Mormon, but just to pray about it. And that you will have an experience that will confirm for you that the Book of Mormon is true and Joseph Smith's a prophet of God. So this is entirely experiential and you come in in an experiential way. But like you just said, that when you sit in that chair, it's because you, as a witness, have observed something evidential about the chair for years. And, and if you had never done that, if you didn't know what a chair was, you'd have less confidence about sitting in it. But because you knew evidentially the chair could hold body weight, you'd seen it. It's the same thing when an officer trusts his vest because he's seen it stop bullets in the range. Well, this is that's the evidential experience we have first. You are far more likely to stand tall, calmly in a gunfight if you first know that the vest can stop bullets. So it turns out that your level of commitment and your calm, steady in a, in a fire, in a firefight, is dependent upon the degree to which you evidentially trust the vest. So evidence does come before the kind of confidence. And and this is why it's, it's sometimes I'll say that once I understood the, the, the theology, like if you've read Job and you've parsed out Job chapter by chapter, and you paid attention to how God responds to Job at the end, you'll be far more equipped to respond to your own suffering going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, why? It's because you've equipped yourself. And so now when it happens, we're, we're back in Job again right now. And so the, my wife said to me, boy, do you think that God's got us in Job because something bad's about to happen? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like he's preparing us. But we've just sliced and diced this thing every which way you can look at it. Mm. And it does help you, though. And so that's why it is important. Uh, it's not just that young people want to know that it's true. I think we are moving into a situation, into a generation right now where, where they want to know, is it good? Mm. Not just is it true, right. is it good? Because it doesn't seem like it's good if it's going to exclude an entire category of people that we now embrace. Mm -hmm. And so so the culture now embraces. So if it's, if it, how can it be good? Well, here's the trick. I don't think that something can be good if it's not even true. That's like a first step, right? Right. right. So I think, but both cases have to be made to young people. And that's why I wrote two different kinds of books in, in Cold Case Christianity and Person of Interest. I mean, Cold Case Christianity makes the case for the for the truism, you know, the trueness of Christianity, whereas Person of Interest, and I've got a book coming out next year called The Truth and True Crime, which really makes a case for the goodness of Christianity. And I think that's going to be something we have to do with our young people because they are, they are entering into a world in which if they adopt this view, I mean, we used to be when I was younger, I can remember thinking the same thing that you often heard many people say, you know, this Jesus guy seems to be smart and he seems to say some really cool things, but I don't like Christians much. Mm. Like I'd like the Christ of Christianity, but not so much the Christians of Christianity. But I think for a lot of young people today, if they were to say such a thing, it would only be because they don't even know what Jesus taught. Right. Once they know what Jesus teaches about sexual relationships, about marriage, sanctity of life, identity, 
um, they may not like Jesus very much because they're going to discover that Jesus does not agree with the culture. Right. And that's something if we're going to ask young people to invest their lives in this, they're going to have to know that the best can stop bullets and that the life you're looking for, the life in which you flourish, the way that God has designed you to flourish is actually dependent upon a worldview that God established called Christianity. And it is not just good, it's good for you. And and we are going to have to help young people see that. And, and by the way, your influence as a parent with your young people, it pretty much stops by the time they're out of junior high. Hmm. Um, you're the most important voice in your child's life until other voices seep in that then become start to compete for your voice. It's their friends. It's their teachers. It's media personalities. It's whoever's the most popular rage on TikTok. These voices begin to compete for, with our voices as parents. And suddenly we don't have the influence we used to have. So this is something that we don't, I, I, I work with a lot of Christian high schools who say, well, yeah, we teach Christian apologetics and the evidence for Christianity like to seniors in high school. It's like four years too late. They're already gone. I mean, you're going to start to do this, honestly, in that 8 to 12 range. Um, by the time they're out of junior high, 14, you're probably done having the kind of influence that you used to have. What we see is that that a, a six, uh, like a, maybe a, a six-year-old or an eight-year-old in Bible studies or in a Sunday school class will say, why does Satan do it that way? By the time they're in junior high, the question is, why do you believe there's a Satan? Right. Different kind of question. And and so you have a chance to talk about the reality of the Christian worldview, and you better be making a, a case that's beyond your personal experience. Right. Because you know this, as growing up, did you want to be exactly like your dad? I mean, I, I kind of <laughs> did once I got to be older, but but to be honest, at some point, you don't want to be like your parents. Right. And you're going to test those waters. And, and if we don't know this is true, we're going to end up walking away. So I do think this is the time, and, it's, and this is why we do kids' books, because we believe that 8 to 12 range is critical. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on that because we're talking about young people, and we're talking about influence, and we're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, the, the influence of a Christian family, a Christian home, or the influence of our friends and, and society and culture. So when a young person, because they're going to be on social media, they're going to sure. they end up there. You, you can't stop it. It's going to happen whether it's at your house or someone else's house. Uh, if you could, if you could shut it down completely here. My daughter would still older find a way to get on sure. social media. Yeah. So when they look at the Christians, because we're talking about Christians and how Christians react and how Christians mm -hmm. are, and when we teach how Jesus says we're supposed to be. So then we get onto social media and this is where it really unravels because we were talking about good. We were talking about like, oh, this meal is good. This is this is the sustenance that you need. And then they get on social media and they see and they see the Christians acting like the non-Christians and this battle over Christendom or, or theologies or against the, the person that their friend is. You know, you see, you know, my friend, you know, says there is he's a boy, but he says he's a girl. Right. OK. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they go go on the social media and they start bashing the LGBT. The Christians start acting this way. How do we approach that young person? How do we approach that person who's seeing like the Christian not act good the way that the Bible says that we should act? Well, everything is satisfaction and everything is, is based on expectations. Right. So if I told you that there was a five star restaurant that you should try and you went there and it was really good, but you would have given it like a three and a half. But it's still better than any other meal you've had this month. Well, suddenly you're disappointed because it's not what you would call five star. 
because that was your expectation. Even though it was great, you're suddenly less than satisfied because your, your expectations dictate your level of satisfaction. And I think that part of it is that you have to have realistic expectations about what humans are in, on either side of the gospel, what humans are in every organization, what humans are in every worldview. If I have appropriate ex, um, expectations, like as a cop, I, I kind of know what to expect. I feel like there's an entire world of the police officer that's kind of like in the matrix. Like everyone has not taken the pill except for the police officers. They get to see it every single day and they get to see the alternative kind of parallel universe that's really out there that is pretty grimy and right. pretty evil. And there is, it, sadly, it exists and police officers know it. Depending on where you work, it's more and more, it's either more or less evident. But it, it feels like, gosh, if people understood that, like I'm never shocked when someone does something really vile or off the map because I know that that kind of that I, I have a certain level of expectation of the nature of people. Right. And so I'm never surprised when someone in the church does something they shouldn't do because this is true for, for everyone. This is that the churches are hospitals and they're filled with people who are sick, which is what you would want, right? You'd want those kinds of people in your in your hospital. And we're all in some state of, of transition. And and some of us will be a mess. Some of us will call ourselves Christians, but never really know anything about Jesus or what he taught or what beyond what maybe a pastor says on a Sunday. We're not committed to our Christian. For example, there are people who would say that they that the, the, well, the divorce rate of Christians, people who simply identify as Christians, is about the same as the divorce rate of people who don't identify as Christians. But... If you look at those people who identify as Christians who actually read their scripture, pray regularly, are active in their church and serve, their divorce rate is very, very low. Right. Well, why? Because the church is filled with people who will identify as Christians but aren't really committed right. to the Christian worldview at all. And they have not let the Spirit of God change them in any way. Mm. And that is my expectation in every single church. And so I'm never surprised, you know, in that same church where you found somebody who was kind of acting like an idiot, right? There's also a core of people who are the unbelievably transformed family of God that you're not paying attention to. And they're dramatically outnumbered by the people who are fools. I'm going to just say that that sounds terrible, I'm sure. But this is what Jesus said. Many of you in Matthew 7 are going to say you knew me and are, have done things in my name. That means they are identifying as Christians. Right. Yet I'm going to say I never knew you. And very narrow is that gate that leads to the kingdom. And very wide is the path to destruction. Well, that means that more people are on the path to destruction than are going through the narrow gate. And that's happening in every church as well. Right. So why would you be? That's my expectation. So why would you be surprised that you find people off the rails in a, in a church? Mm. What you're not paying attention to, though, is a number of people who are there who are deeply committed and have allowed God's spirit to change them, have been transformed by the spirit of God. And if you look for those people, you will have your socks blown off. Right. So it's, it's about what your expectations are. So for our parents that are watching right now, listen up because your child's also watching you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, this is why marriage, marriage is a picture of the church, right? right. Jesus says right. it from the very beginning. Your marriage preaches. Whether you like it or not. Right. And it's preaching something. Right. And we do a lot of work now, my wife and I, with just police officers through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, 
who had experienced deep trauma, mm. um, deep injuries, the loss of a partner, something terrible on duty. And now their marriages are struggling. Mm. And they come for a week. We're getting ready to leave in five days. We'll be gone for three weeks, just counseling and doing marriage resiliency. And the truth of it is, is that these marriages are struggling. Um, and sometimes they're Christians, sometimes they're not. Um, but when God gets a hold of your marriage, um, it, it preaches something that your kids will see. You know, it's like they always talk about, it's not what's taught, it's what's caught. And it's very, very true in marriage. And that picture, um, it can be beautiful or it could be um, a cautionary tale for some kids who don't want a marriage. I did not want a marriage like my parents. They were not Christians. It was a train wreck. They divorced when I was three. Um, I don't want that kind of marriage. So your marriage is going to teach something. Let's 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 hope that it teaches something beautiful. Amen. Something good. Yeah. No, amen. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I'm I always love your answers because they definitely challenge and make me think. And there's like the semantics of the, you know, casual semantics, like the kind of way we talk and the way we throw things out. And then you bring the critical thinking back in to kind of put some of that into question. And so as far as like what to store up in your pantry, it seems like, you know, we have this big container of proofs. Everyone has a container of proofs in their pantry. The things like, Mm -hmm. these are the things I draw out when you say, why do I believe what I believe? This Mm -hmm. is what I have. And what it seems like is in there, we need to be pulling out a lot of our own experiences. We can store them elsewhere, but they don't belong in here. And instead fill that proof, that proof container with things that reinforce the actual word of God rather than the things, you know, well, I think I heard God one time or, you know, my right. colds have gotten shorter or, you know, I feel so much better listening to Christian music than worldly music. Those are, those have their place. But when someone's coming to you who wants to understand the truth and you're trying to lead them to the truth, the, ble- the best place to start is with the word of God and showing the testimonies and why they're verifiable and, and helping bring people up in critical thinking to be like, this is why the word of God more than me, my life, what I've experienced, thought I've experienced, want to experience more than all of that. This is, this is why the word of God is trustworthy. This is why you can trust this. This is why it's not just a random assortment of conspiratorial stories that a group of people put together and then let the Lord work in that person individually. And then they can build their own little experiences shelf in the pantry. But that's well, not yes, what we necessarily true. need to be pulling out. Like we need to verify the word more. And I think that that's, you know, I think I've without thinking conflated the two more than I should have in the past, you know, like what have, what's God done in your life? Sure. Share, right. We have to have that too. We store up the, the, the things that he's done in our lives, but you know, that's not necessarily what a skeptic or someone new to the faith or is confused necessarily needs to hear. And it's not as reliable as the testimony of those that literally saw Jesus. In, in well, if you if you've ever um, you had anybody as a Mormon in your family or if you've ever attended a ward and I have done that a number of times and seen what happens in wards, they're not exegeting the Book of Mormon as much as they're sharing personal testimony. And this is also true with missionaries at your door. At some point, they're going to share their personal testimony as if it's evidential. Mm-hmm. Look, if a Mormon can do it, you shouldn't. <laughs> if a Mormon resu- if a Mormon falls back on this approach, you shouldn't, right? Because right. you know Mormonism is not true. Right. 
Um, And the Book of Mormon is describing a thousand year history in the North American continent from 600 BC to 400 AD, none of which can be verified in even the slightest way. Mm -hmm. There isn't a single piece of archeology span revealing a single Mormon name, a single Mormon city, a single Mormon coin system, a weapon system. Even the animals that the Book of Mormon says were on the continent weren't there at that time. So it's just not factually true. Right. So, it, and look, you might say, well, yes, but there's people who are, are transformed by their experience of community in the Mormon church. And that is true. Look, if we talked about Job earlier, if Job had to rely on his experiences to make a case for God, uh, Bill, Dad, and, and Zophar, and, and all the different, you know, his three friends who came, could you imagine what would his case be? It would be a terrible case. And But here's what he did. He, he, he didn't flinch. Um, you have to know something beyond your experience or the first time you have a bad experience, you're going to go in a different direction or you're going to think something about the nature of God or the character of God that isn't true. And we do this all the time in scripture studies. I see this all the time in Bible studies where people will read a passage and then the first question will be, well, what does that, what does that mean to you? <laughs> like that matter doesn't matter what it means to me. Right. How about this? What did Paul intend to say to the community he was writing to in the first mm. century? Mm. Because that's what matters in there, not how I'm taking it personally in 2023. <laughs> and I think we, we have to kind of switch the way we're thinking about scripture uh, before we're ever going to be able to teach it to young people. And, and the reality of it is um, that, that I think young people are, are hungry for this. Right. Look, I, I, this next book I'm writing, I, I just wanted to show, and I learned this working criminal cases because criminal cases reveal the nature of humans in weird ways. I always say you can get a lot of life lessons from working death investigations. And you just do because, you know, some of these are cautionary tales. Some of them reveal the kind of fallen nature of humans or the unique nature of humans or some attribute of, 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 uh, of human flourishing that is missing in this particular case. And, and what I love about that examination is that if you're just hitting that, trying to hit that bullseye with a dart that is called human flourishing, in other words, if you just wanted to extend your life to have better mental health, better physical health, <laughs> higher success in a number of areas, deeper relationships, more committed relationships, well, if you keep on throwing that dart and you're trying to hit human flourishing, you're going to hit something called the Christian worldview. Because it turns out that every scientific study that's being done right now to demonstrate what causes humans to flourish can be found on the pages of the New Testament. Mm. And it, 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 we're discovering this now like we are so like, oh, this is so special. We've got studies now that reveal <laughs> this thing that is very ancient and Christians have known for 2,000 years. But my fear is that, that, um, that people don't even know because they're not reading. Um, they're not engaged in scripture. They're not reading the Bible. They are trusting that they get enough on Sunday. There are, we are in a world right now that is so rich with resources that are free. You can listen to um, sermons and you can find great Bible teachers <laughs> online who have podcasts two, three times a week sometimes. That they'll release content. That if you wanted to fill your head with something, it, it's there. Right. It is. It is available to us right now. Yet, if I if you go on my um, smartphone, you're going to find that half my podcasts are sports, half are theology, half are sports. 
I spend a lot of time listening to sports. Football season is just about, what, six weeks away. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I've already got lots of expectations. I've been, you know, I, I teams that I follow. Basketball season just ended. I, you know, the only thing I don't follow is baseball. I probably, probably shouldn't follow baseball because I just have no break. And But here's my point. We got choices now that are available to young people. And if you really want me to know what you love, show me your, your calendar each day. Show me your mm -hmm. schedule. Right. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what you love. It's wow. talk is cheap. What are you right. spending your time on? Ooh. That's what you love. That's what wow. you worship. Yeah. What are you singing about? What's the music? Mm. You're either singing about what you worship or you're worship, worshiping what you sing about. Mm. And, and one can cause the other to change. So I just think that we have to help young people to realize that mm. this is, well, and here's the other problem too. We have to be the kinds of teachers that can throw the ball in a way that young people can catch it. Mm. That is going to be important is that we're going to have to figure out like, is this accessible? Yeah. Is this, and I've been saying this for a number of years now, we have to give two whys for every one what. Right. It's one thing to say, here's what's true theologically. This is what's true about the Bible. This is what's true about about Jesus. This is what, 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 what. We need two whys for every what. The first why has to be, well, why do you think that's true? And it needs probably to be more than because the Bible says so. Well, why do you trust the Bible? Right. That's the first why. It's it's a make a case for why that's true, kind of a why. The second why is, is why do I care? Why should I care? What, well, how's this related to me? Right. You're geeked out about this theological principle. How's it relate to me at 13? If we can't figure out a way to show young people that this is written to them, uh, then why would they care to read it? So I think in the end, we have to help them see that whatever they struggle with today, whatever they came home with struggling, there actually is counsel on the pages of Scripture that addresses that issue specifically. Because there is. Right. Do we know our Scripture well enough to know where to go? Heck, to be honest. If you've got free software on your phone, you don't even need to know it well enough. You can still figure out where the answer is. Right. Are we doing that? Are we all, are we constantly, and, and so are we making it relevant? Does the Bible still matter to young people? And honestly, that's the only group that matters is young people. Mm. If you're 50, 60, <laughs> I'm 60s in my 60s, I'm in. Okay, great. If you're 16, you may not be. That generation matters way more than any other generation. That's the future. We're the past. That's the future. We need to be focused on young people. Hey, man, I agree. No, this is awesome. This has been awesome. Yeah. Uh, always, always jam-packed, full. Um, it makes me think of this whole conversation, Hebrews 11.1, 1, because it really describes this, this faith. And it's not talking about this faith, blind faith, and all this stuff. It's the faith that comes from the substance of hope. And where does this hope come from? It comes from the word of God. And how does this hope come into the generations below us? It's going to be by being able to tell them the why. When they yeah, I think that's question. a very good point because hope in a biblical terms is widely misunderstood. Yes. We use that word hope uh, the same way we use it in culture today. And mm -hmm. it really is more akin. People think of hope as wishful thinking. Like, I sure hope the Rams win next week. Mm -hmm. Do we know they're going to? Well, I hope they do. That's not the kind of hope that's on the pages of scripture. Yeah. Hope on in scripture is always certainty and confidence on the basis of what right. you know. Right. Mm -hmm. It's grounded in what you know. So it's not wishful thinking. 
And when when the writer of Hebrews says, you know, it's it's it's, it's related to what's unseen. It's you, how do you know what you can't see? You know it on the basis of what you can. Right. We have hope and confidence in the unseen world because we can we have we have evidence in the seen world. And that's how you know, because there's no juror who's going to get a video they can play. Well, there, I guess there are cases where it's on video now. But in my cases, I cannot put them at the scene of the crime again. I cannot let them watch the crime. They're going to have to make a case and make a, a, a decision about something they cannot see and will never be able to see on the basis of the evidence we can show them. Right. So that certainty of what cannot be seen is derived from what can be. And this is what is Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about. So there's, there's virtually no passage of scripture that's going to affirm a blind faith. It is hope derived from the confidence and certainty that you gather from what you do know. Right. And that's the hope that we have. Amen. Mm -hmm. Substance, which is reality. Yes. Amen. 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 For everybody listening, when does cold case Christianity, the 2.0, officially released so that they can grab the brand new refined and extra spicy version. So it's on, uh, it's a pre-order until September 5th. Now here's what we wanted to do. I realized that um, sometimes a book that's 10 years old, you're thinking, well, do I need a copy of this? Um, so I, I always tell people you need to exhaust what's free before you spend any money. Cause there's so much out there that you can get for nothing. Mm -hmm. that you ought to be taking advantage of. Um, right. So we always want to offer a bunch of stuff with anything we do because we're not authors because this is our our income stream. Right. You know, I have a pension and that takes care of everything. So I, I don't need to, to write a book. Um, but I do think we should grow the church. And I mm -hmm. think that we need to put Christian apologists out of business. There is no need for a Christian. There is nothing on the pages of the New Testament that ever describes Christian apologist as a position. There are pastors, there are teachers, there are evangelists. But this Christian apologist as a position is not, it's, it's not there. Here's what's there. The duty to make a case is on the pages of Scripture in a number of places, including 1 Peter 3. So that duty, though, is not given to a pastor or an evangelist or a teacher, it's given to the average Christian. Mm. If you say you're a Christ follower, you're supposed to be ready to give the reason for the hope you have in Jesus. Instead, we've created an industry of people who are Christian apologists. We've created this thing. We don't need another Christian apologist. We don't need another million dollar Christian apologist. We need a million one dollar Christian apologist that are just called Christians. <laughs> Amen. So, so what we're trying to do is to get, you know, and by the way, in your church, in all, all of our churches, probably 1% of the congregation even cares about this. We're trying to get it. So, so I get it. And we're in this period right now where we write books hoping to move the other 99%. Mm -hmm. So here's what we're doing. Long story short is that anyone who buys this book, if they go to our website, you'll see in the top banner or go to Christian, I go coldcasechristianitybook.com. Mm. Um, and you'll see that uh, for people who order, we are number one going to give you a 10 and a half hour, 30 session case making course Ooh. that has PDF files that go with it. And all of the videos, you watch it, it's self-directed and you can earn a certificate if you take the course. That's available for free. We have to move in this direction if we ever hope to help our young people. We also are going to give you over 40 Bible inserts with those illustrations from the book. Mm. And there's a 410 slide PowerPoint presentation. So you can start teaching this to people in your congregation. Woo! 
So I the idea here now, well, the, whole, <laughs> the whole point is we have to figure out how to move from, yeah, I'm kind of interested. Yeah, that's interesting. Right, right. To this is essential and we need it to do something now. Right. And so that's what we're hoping to do with uh, with this kind of a move. So anyway, that's available at, at coldcasechristianitybook.com. Thank you Ooh, so much. And I am much. there. Yes. Mm. So you'll be seeing a sale pop up very quickly, but we'll also link all of this in the show notes for everybody listening. Thank you again, Jim, for being our most like, oh, mind blowing guest every single time that you're here. And for everybody listening, you can go ahead, go to coldcasechristianitybook.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. It'll be linked on YouTube. Get these things. And we challenge you to do this in your small groups, do this with your kids do it with your friends, your neighbors, your spouse, but do it. Most importantly, you do it so that we can move that dial a little bit more. So until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. The Pantry Podcast is also honored to be featured on the Edify app, Spark Radio, Spark Media on Uplifted, and Eternity Ready Radio.